0: It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain. Somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. Lift off. I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy
1: fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible.
0: When people think about owning a vineyard, what often comes to mind is romantic scenery with beautiful buildings, vineyards on rolling hills as far as the eye can see, and wines paired with delicious culinary delights. Well, there's plenty of that, but in reality, making
1: high quality wine is a difficult business that combines both art and science a lot can go wrong due to mother nature or human error.
0: We wanted to learn more about the risks associated with winemaking. We also wanted to have a little bit of fun. So we invited David Duncan to join us. David is the proprietor, chairman, and CEO of the famed family-owned Silver Oak Winery in Napa Valley. It turns out that David's more than just
1: a winemaker also. He's a Colorado boy who's been a cowboy. A skier, hunter, fisherman, and he's a member of the band Silverado Pickups, which has warmed up for our previous guest, Tim McGraw, several times at charity concerts. So we caught up with David at his winery
0: in Oakville, California.
1: So David Duncan from Silver Oak Winery, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks, Sandy.
2: I'm pleased to be here coming to you from uh, the middle of Napa Valley. And uh Sandra, pleasure to uh meet you and and uh be on your show. Thank you.
0: Yeah, we're really delighted you're here, and we can't wait to talk to you about the art, science, and risk of winemaking. But before we get into that, let's start a little bit with the history of how you got into it, where you grew up, what attracted you to winemaking in the first place.
2: So my uh my father was a serial entrepreneur, and uh I, I like to say that he he always invested in mother nature-based businesses. So he Actually started Esquire in Colorado in 1965. We started Silver Oak, co-founded Silver Oak in 1972, and Dad was also in the oil and gas business and got more serious about that in the late 70s and early 80s. And uh, so I was like to say we started Silver Oak before <laughs> the, before the oil business helped out things a little bit, but uh, you know, so we're a family business. And uh, my path here actually led through my education. I got my master's at the University of Denver and i uh, got an mba there back in the 90s and
1: at the Daniels school right we the daniel
2: school now i was there before it was the daniel school and so uh yeah dialed into the internet for the first time while i was in business school if you think about that wow
1: and wow. Um, that really ages your times you out i, I know,
2: know i know <laughs> but i did i did my uh my final thesis project on silver oak and uh built the business model and then that led us to uh acquiring full ownership of the winery and then i moved here Full time about twenty years ago, so uh, I have been here now for for many years. Raised our kids here in Napa; uh, it's just a great, great experience.
0: So, if you don't mind me asking, during that that business project for your your degree, you had to like learn from wine from scratch, or did you have some experience in the industry before that to could leverage for your business plan?
2: Well, I had the good fortune of growing up in Colorado, so I didn't grow up here. You know, as sort of what we would call a cellar brat uh in the business and I mean that in the in the most wonderful way. I actually spent my youth farming in Colorado. And so the farming part of the wine business is what attracted me. And and so I I was around it and knew it. But um, you know, I am not the winemaker, thank God, and not a scientist really by background. I'm more of a of a business person and, you know, think more of our of our I've got I've gotten a lot of experience now. And so I definitely have my opinions about things. But, you know, I've been very fortunate to uh, have a wonderful team around me and, and be able to, you know, make these wines that people drink and buy every year and, and love.
1: So you said you're not the winemaker, so we're going to tread on a little dangerous ground here. We're going to talk wine. Most of our listeners have been through some kind of winery tour somewhere on the planet, but can you walk us through the process of from putting a vine in the ground and the challenges associated with that to releasing a new vintage? There's a lot that goes on in between.
2: Yeah. So the biggest factor that people don't underst- often don't understand in winemaking, especially fine winemaking, and it's really particular to Silver Oak because we have about the longest process that you can imagine. So, you know, from the time you plant a vine to the time the grapes are ready to make into wine is about five years. It takes a vine five years before it produces bottle quality grapes. And for us, like we pick, let's say, the 2022 vintage, you know, we ferment it. We put it in barrel for two years, and then we bottle it for two years. So, you know, day after tomorrow, we're going to be releasing our 2018 vintage. So if you're listening to this uh, in the future, it's February of 2023. We are releasing a wine that we made five years ago. And so that part of it is a big, you know, is a big part of it. But it's pick the grapes, crush them, ferment, barrel, bottle, and then enjoy in a nutshell.
0: So clearly there's not only a huge capital investment, then we have to talk about the rest of the risks involved in making wine, and Mother Nature's one of those pieces of risks that you have to deal with. I heard that you had a horrible fire at Silver Oak in two thousand and six. That was a, that's an unexpected twist of Mother Nature, but that was probably very challenging to deal with.
2: Yes, and that, you know now I call it my personal fire because so many people <laughs> in our community have been affected by. By fires, but I actually was at the gym working out in the morning, and my wife called me and said the winery's on fire, and I, I ran down here. And sometime when you when you visit Sandra, I'll show you the picture of me in my gym clothes. Um, but <laughs> you know, we yes, we had a we had a uh, terribly devastating fire here in 2006. The actually tomorrow is the anniversary of the fire. It was on February second. Oh wow! And so the dumpster caught on fire. It was an accident. Happened to be a windy February morning, and it burned down the original building that we found in Silver Oak in, uh, which was an old dairy barn that was built in, we think, about 1920 and uh, destroyed 117 barrels of wine Ooh. and did enough damage to the winery that we decided to rebuild. And so one of the things that you have being a lifelong farmer and and a person of the land is a lot of resiliency. So literally the afternoon of the fire, we went down and our CFO at the time, who's now retired, said she was crying and people were Upset. And she said, What are we going to do? And really, without missing a beat, I was like, We're going to rebuild the winery. And we opened a bottle of wine and everybody started laughing. And <laughs> almost in that moment, you know, we, we bounced back and we started the plan. And now, you know, Sandy, you've been here. Uh, we built a beautiful new modern facility with 35 years of experience. And really, it was the best thing that ever happened to us. It gave us a chance to refresh the brand, think about things in a different way, and build a great winery.
0: So none of the vines were damaged. It was just the buildings, huh? No, it was
2: just the building. Yes. Oh,
0: that's fortunate. Yes. Yeah.
2: Yes.
1: Well, you know, I really admire people who can take a, you know, a negative and, and turn it into a positive, you know, and and you all have really done that. It's a gorgeous, gorgeous facility. Uh and I know that when we were kind of snorkeling around the valley looking to see where we were gonna do the, you know, the charity event that Guy and Tim did, that it was like, this is the place. Uh so can you tell us a little bit about the the thinking that went into putting because it's a whole new facility that has uh, a, a really nice arrangement for events. Yeah, I
2: mean, so you know, back when we were designing this of course, we were responding to the fire, so there was some time pressure on us. But you know, first and foremost, we built the winery. That was our primary purpose here: is to make and you know age and produce our wines. But as part of that, especially in the modern era, um, hospitality is a big factor. So. To have uh, the new tasting room, we built a commercial kitchen, and then we really thought about guests coming and enjoying wine and being able to do events like we did for Tim and Guy's foundation here, as well as more you know smaller, more intimate events. We've done dinner for four at the winery too, and the event that Sandy and I are referring to was dinner for four (laughs) hundred. So it was it was (laughs) uh, it can go both ways, and so we we did really think a lot about how to um, have the flexibility. And the space and, the you know, we're in a beautiful place because it's Napa Valley. And so I appreciate your, your, you know, enjoyment. And, and uh, there was a lot of thought that went into it.
0: So, you know, getting, getting back to mother nature, the fire, of course, is something that's not really expected, but dealing with water whether you have too much, or you not, don't have enough, especially with some of the challenges that California's had over the years, how do you deal with those risks as a, as a farmer?
2: You know, it's, it's very, very interesting from an industry standpoint, what's been happening with uh, the application of science and technology to wine growing. I'll just stick to that. We think today that we use about 30% of the water that we did 10 or 15 years ago. Wow. So in the old days, you know, we would go kick on a valve at seven o'clock at night and come out seven o'clock in the morning and turn it off. So, you know, you might do a 12-hour set kind of when the vines looked like they needed to drink during the summer when it's hot today we measure uh, with neutron probes. We use leaf water potential. We do, uh, you know, just in the old days, like if you wanted to fly, take an infrared picture, an NDVI of a vineyard to see where vineyard health is, you would need to fly an airplane to do that. Today, you can do it with a drone and you could literally do it every day. You know, it used to cost $6,000 to get, you know, a vineyard block done. So all of that application, I think, has really helped us manage water use and We also know that deficit, what we call deficit irrigation produces better wines. And so keeping the vine just with enough water instead of like satiated all the time produces better wines. And so we're using a lot less water. You know, we've also taken, and some of this has to do with our whole sustainability approach, but we've also taken our experience in the vineyards and applied it to the winery because we use, you know, a great deal of water in the wineries. And we actually built another winery in the Alexander Valley, which we finished in 2017 and took what we learned here in Oakville from the fire experience and applied. um, That building is actually designated as a living building. And so like our water use statistic, just to answer that question, the wine industry uses about six to seven gallons of water per gallon of wine. That's kind of the rule of thumb. We know for a fact that our Alexander Valley facility uses one gallon of potable water per gallon of wine and you know so we we beat it by you know a factor of of seven right and so it, it, it was wow. it was an amazing application of good thinking and and taking some risk and and uh you know figuring out how to make sure it works and now you know this is going to be our seventh vintage in the in the winery that's i can't believe that that much time's already passed and and it works great and it makes wonderful wonderful wines uh which people enjoy
1: so you're well down the road on the E part of ESG, I guess, uh, as far as the water goes. And, oh, and you know, and been committed to that for a long time. yeah. Usually, it's it's not enough water around Napa Valley this year. I'm sure you were affected by the the rains. Was that a problem having too much water in your in your vineyards this year?
2: You know, it's funny because I've had a lot of friends reach out and say, "Are you okay?" Uh, texts and emails and calls, and and I keep telling everybody it's been wonderful. You know, so no, having you know the the reservoir's full, having the water table you know get regenerated has uh, been wonderful and and people forget that, like in the winter of sixteen seventeen and the winter of nineteen and twenty we had sixty inches of rain in Napa normal here is about thirty three inches of rain, and so for Napa Valley, we're not even to you know normal levels yet. It was very, very rainy for a month, and of course, the snowpack up in the Sierra is tremendous, and so we're always fighting what Mother Nature's thrown at us and and adjusting to it. So, but to answer your question, it's really not too much water. I know there were communities affected and people died and I'm not trying to belittle that at all, but from a farming standpoint, you know, we welcome rain all the time.
1: Are you seeing any um, uh, detectable sort of long range, long-term impacts of climate change, or is it just all over the place and you can't see anything discernible?
2: My canned answer is that if we can't grow Cabernet Sauvignon in Napa Valley, that the Earth's problems are going to be much more complicated
1: than that. <laughs> there you go. I can you relate know, to that. I love it. Because yeah. Manhattan yeah.
2: will be twelve feet underwater, and yeah. you know, nobody will be out there to buy wine. But I mean, of course, there are uh, people in the industry that are trying to plant different varietals and think about you know those things. And and uh, you know, I have spent time working in the oil and gas business, and I know quite a bit about geology and time. Uh, we've already talked about that a little bit as a huge risk for us. But I think on the global scale of time, a hundred years is not a big deal, you know. And there, there is—I'm not belittling climate change at all. I think man has definitely affected and done less than good things to the Earth. But it is very complicated, and there are events that could happen. You know, a volcano comes out. We have a two or three degree uh, Celsius cooling event. You know, we might be having the opposite problem of, of global warming. And so there's a there's a lot of different you know thinking about that, and I just don't think we know. So I my my personal response is just keep my head down keep doing what we do enjoy every day and
1: enjoy every moment yeah and like you said earlier when the bad thing happens you know suck it up and move on
2: yeah and we've you know we've we've made impact to try and impact you know impact our carbon footprint at the winery and everything that we do so you know we're doing our part as well
0: so back to the nature issue pests how do you deal with pests and and how they engage or want to munch on your vines, yeah, they like grapes too, huh
1: yeah, so that's a great question we don't
2: it's it's interesting, we don't have a lot of issues, you know we don't get huh. when we had the fire in two thousand and six, we had had a flood a month before, so we had a flood on January first, the fire on February second, so on March third, I was joking that we were going to have the locusts come in and take out the vines, <laughs> but we don't really have that, so the thing that we do today is we promote beneficial predators. You know, if you came out in the Napa fifteen or twenty years ago, there were no weeds and no grass under any vine in any vineyard anywhere. It was a bit like the Dust Bowl in the '30s, because we everybody used Roundup and we were crushing the weeds, trying you know protect them from competing for water uh, with the vines. And we've learned that that's not okay. So now we are really into soil health, promoting what we call beneficial pests in the vineyard to go get the ones that are not good, and so. We do, and we don't spray any pesticides. We don't, out there kind of, uh, you know, trying to wipe out every living thing in the vineyard. And, and um, you know, it's a little bit like using bird netting. I remember an old vendor one time, I was like, why don't you use bird netting? And he said, because birds don't eat that much, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <So> the, <laughs> on the grapes. So so the pests. we do have some issues with pests from time to time, but not. it's not a, you know, a wide-ranging thing. There are threats, like there's, you know, two critters that are both in the sharpshooter family, They could create huge problems. And so the industry's on that. And, you know, we're doing a lot of things to try and prevent, you know, some sort of dramatic change in,
1: you know, in, in different
2: bugs that could cause problems.
0: It sounds like you have to keep a delicate balance there.
1: You definitely do. and Yeah. So digging deeply into the mother nature piece, uh, earthquakes. I imagine an earthquake probably doesn't bother a vineyard too much, but uh, but it probably it could v- bother your uh, your your facility there. I mean, do you think much about that, or is this like okay? We're in Northern California; we have earthquakes all the time. No big deal.
2: So uh, when we built this winery, I remember having a discussion with the engineer, and uh, being from Colorado, I was I'm very aware of earthquakes and kind of nervous about them. So I, told, I kept asking the engineers and the architects that we were working with, you know, I was like, what about earthquakes? What are we going to do about wine storage? You know, how is this going to work? Finally, the engineer got tired of me asking questions. And he said, David, let me put it this way to you. If there's an earthquake, you want to run into this building. <laughs> and, so, and so, and you've been here, Sandy. You know, we built a very portable you know, st- oh, yeah. uh, stone building. And so in 2014, we had a 6.0. A uh, very big test of that. And I was, the earthquake happened at 320. I was in the winery at about 415 in the morning after I cleaned up my house a little bit. And people always are like, did that earthquake wake you up? Everybody says, yes, the earthquake woke you up. And, um, this winery did really well. And so uh, I think earthquakes and rain might be in the same category that, that, uh, there's not a lot you can do about it. And we don't love them around here. It's, that's, they're not a lot of fun. So
0: I imagine it's kind of scary to live through an earthquake. I haven't. I haven't been in one, but in a hurricane, but not an earthquake. That was,
2: that was the biggest one I had been in. And it it was pretty scary because you don't know how long it's going to go. And 6.0 is pretty big. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah.
0: So moving off of the Mother Nature piece, um, you know, Sandy and I have had to deal with throughout our careers is the risk of human error. And so I suppose you have to have certain procedures or training to keep employees from making mistakes or contaminating or ruining a batch. What sort of things do you have to watch out for there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't get asked that frequently. I really like that. Um, It's a big deal. So we have a lot of protocols, you know, a lot of checks. We have things that happen from time to time. You know, years ago, when we even used to use Roundup, and I'm talking 25 years ago, we had an employee spray Roundup over a vineyard and killed the whole vineyard, you know, as an accident. And so he he didn't stay with us. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's one uh, of those
1: big mistakes that, you know...
2: (laughs) Or, you know, we have, um, you know, during the fermentation process, there's, we add yeast and those need to be done in in particular quantities. And there's a lot of math and, you know, figuring out what's going to go into the tank. Um, and so just, you know, all of those different kinds of things, I think, um, around the winemaking side of things. And then, you know, the interesting thing about human error is we also want to promote ingenuity and trial and thinking about our different ways to do things. And taking some risk, frankly, and so one of the things that we benefit by is we're not, you know, we're not a big winery. We we make you know about one hundred and fifty thousand cases a year. So you know, the big giant wineries make millions and millions of cases a year, but we're big enough that we can do trials and try things in meaningful experimental ways. So like you know, we'll do ten tons, you know, three different ways, and then we can taste those wines as opposed to you know, in, in a research environment, you might do twenty pounds and that that's not a commercial, you know, quantity of grapes. And so we do, you know, on the one hand we want to be careful and on the other hand we want to we want to test and try and and uh experiment with different things.
1: But at the end of it all, David, you end up with these beautiful cabernets. Uh is there anything that we left off <laughs> that is a risk you deal with on a daily basis to make those things?
2: Well, let's talk for a second about the the wine consumer and our listeners uh as customers that, you know, what are their risks? So bad bottle of wine corked, you know, how it's preserved, uh, how you feel the day you're drinking the wine. You know, so I, I just wanted to share that from that side of the of the bottle, if you will, or the glass, enjoy what you like and don't let wine snobbery get in your way. Cause it's uh it can be <laughs> it can happen. And uh, you know, that at Silver Oak we promote, you know, enjoyment, conviviality, creating a moment. You know, we own the trademark on life as a cabernet. And so Listening to the adrenaline zone, I think the people that are in these crazy different areas of their lives, they take it very, very, very seriously, but they're also so good at what they do that that they have a casualness about them. I mean I think that's been a thread that I've found through listening to your program and 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 I've found that to be fascinating, and so i th- I think that's a you know something to explore as you guys go forward with this.
1: Yeah, you know the common things of risk takers are, are are we've found a number of this, this is our 32nd episode and and you know you're right in there with them i can tell you that by the way i have from the consumer side i have two rules about drinking wine one is life is too short for a crappy bottle of wine so if you open it and it's not good <laughs> pour it out totally agree which by the way has never happened with a bottle of silver oak and the other is i will not open an expensive bottle of wine with somebody that i don't think appreciates it and i have friends who appreciate it It's not snobbery. It's friends who know what it is and friends who don't. And I want to preserve those moments for people who actually get it.
2: Those are great rules. I fully support them.
0: Well, you know, David, to reiterate on something Sandy said, it seems like from what you've done, you're one of those people between cowboying, skiing to, I guess, uh, Sandy told me you had some time as a stage musician, musician. so you have a little bit of an attraction to adrenaline and risk-taking in general as well so
2: yeah i think i think growing up a skier uh you know it got uh instilled in me and the music thing is is really fun we actually uh i have band practice tonight uh with the boys and we have a, a band called the silverado pickups sandy i don't know if you saw us perform or you were backstage I did. but but yeah. we you've uh, warmed up you for know,
1: you've warmed up tim, McGraw, warmed up three for times, tim right? McGraw
2: three times yeah and very nice yeah i i used to i joke that the first time we warmed up for tim McGraw was the 20 minutes of my life that I lost because I, I barely remembered it at all. I was so nervous and, you know, I'm not a natural performer, but I love being in the band and and we have a great time, but it is uh very adrenaline producing to be up on stage and, and, uh, you know, in front of a, it's harder to play in front of four people than it is in front of 400 to be honest. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> but, but yeah, cause uh,
1: you might actually hear back from the four. <laughs> yeah. And some of your bandmates, uh, your teammates, there are are competitors, right? They're people who also make wine.
2: I like to think of it like like uh, Paris in the in the twenties, right? Where it's like more like we're all artists that are hanging out together. Yeah. Napa Valley is a wonderful place, and people really get along, and people share so many ideas. And so we do have uh, other vendors in the band, and and we're all, you know, we all have a great time, and we enjoy enjoy some wine together and play music, and it makes for makes for a very good time.
0: Well, risk so, comes in many forms and getting up in, in front of a huge crowd of people as a musician is certainly one of them. So
2: And we we did record an album and uh it is ah. we're just about to get it out. It's called uh Bacon, butter and salt, the album of the Silverado pickups. So I might do a little plug for my album and uh, hopefully, by the time y'all are listening to this, you can uh, you can Google that up and and uh, and listen to it on your favorite streaming
1: service. What every good chef puts on almost every meal, yes, <laughs> at least the the butter. There's is. a
2: story behind that, but we'll have to save that for another time. So okay, yeah.
1: um, so you know, and on the personal side of handling the risk, you know, we, one of the things that Sandra, I think, would she would agree, we've discovered is that there's kind of this duality of how people have an intense focus on it and they, they are able to calculate the risk extremely, extremely well. The people who are really good at what they do, but they're also, there's also this sort of almost callous, relaxed, like, hey, as long as I don't die, if this thing doesn't work out, there's something else I can do in my life. So, so they've got this sort of juxtaposition of intense focus on the risk, but at the same time detaching from it. Is that, does that resonate with you? Do, you? do you have a sense the same way?
2: Yeah, I think that's what I was trying to express a minute ago with, with, you know, so many of your, of your episodes. I I think that's absolutely true. I guess you get to a point in any business industry, life pursuit, sport, hobby of kind of you've seen it all. And, you know, I think I'm not a trained pilot like you both are, but I have been around a lot of that. And, you know, I think that's why you go through every single scenario you can imagine so that when it, when it actually happens to you, you've already done it. And so, you know, from a wine standpoint, we've, you know, we grow wine every year. We, it's either too much rain or too much or not enough rain that those are, that's only common. There's never a perfect amount of rain. And, you know, whether you have a pest problem or a personnel problem or, you know, or something goes wrong or you pick too early or, you know, whatever, you just got to roll with the punches. And I think people who deal with risk on a, on a basis all the time, their uh, ability to roll the punches and not let it take you down you know gets refined and gets and gets they get to be experts at that, whether you're a bull rider or a, or a mountain skier or a yeah. mountain climber or-
0: building
1: resilience yeah. so you're not only a uh, successful winemaker and a musician. I see your guitar in the corner behind you uh, <laughs> but one of the great things David I like about you is that you uh, you believe in philanthropy and you do a lot of philanthropic work and not just the concert we talked about earlier but and it's not uncommon for some of our risk takers to be uh, uh, philanthropic. And can you? There's so much that you do in the valley. Uh, I can't even begin to list it. But you know, tell our listeners about that. What do you do, and why do you do it?
2: Oh boy! Well, I, I I have been involved in a lot of things. I think part of it is that I do have a platform to do good, and people love whether it's a wine bottle in a silent auction for a kid's school or a book club or something, all the way to having last year I actioned off an event with Kelsey Ballerini as, as a private concert who, you know, Kelsey's a, is a, you know, just a, she's not rising. She's a star now. And she was incredible. And, you know, we did an amazing event and we raised almost a half a million dollars, you know, for a charity or the thing that we did for, you know, for Tim and Guy. So I think just having the ability to give back and, and participate in that is, you know, it's very gratifying. I, I don't do it from an ego standpoint. We're not, you know, you don't see my name all over that stuff at all, but it, you know, we live in a place where people like to come and they'll be very generous. Uh, we are hosting this year for our local community. We're bringing back a live auction, which hasn't happened since COVID in the Napa Valley, uh, used to be known as Auction Napa Valley. And, uh, we're actually going to host the main event and the, and the live auction at Silver Oak, uh, June 3rd this year. So very exciting. And if you want to support all the things that make great wine, you know, please support that. And, uh, you can find out about it at collective dot Valley.com. So, but, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to be able to do that. And, and, um, we support hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different charities around the country every year, you know, often with just a bottle of wine or a and tasting, um, but very fortunate to get to do that.
1: I do want to ask you, how do you feel about the 2018 vintage? You probably had a sneak peek at that a couple of times.
2: Yes. Oh, absolutely. As, as a matter of fact, we just tasted the, uh, the 18, 19, 20, 21, and 22. So I, oh. I am a, that's that's how I get a sneak peek because we always taste the back vintages when we do the blends, which we just completed the 22 blends. 18 is beautiful. You know, it was it was a, in hindsight, we knew it was a good vintage at the time, but it was a, kind of a large vintage. And now we sort of know that like large quantity vintages tend to be very high quality, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, but, but it's not. Uh, so we're just thrilled with the wine. Um, the other exciting thing, talking about taking a risk, is that after almost 20 years, we changed the Napa Valley package from a silk screen label to a paper label. And so that's something that our customers, other well, now their emails are out, but most people have not seen this brand new label that we designed like three years ago. And part of that was for a sustainability purpose. So both what's in the bottle and what's on the bottle is very important to us. And, and uh, I think people are really, really going to enjoy it. So yeah, eighteen Napa is the next one coming out.
0: If you still have a moment, I'd want to go backwards a minute to the um, the science and the technology use in the vineyard. I was a little fascinated with that. So, do you have little experimental areas of the vineyard that you try out new technologies before you deploy them? So, in a larger sense, yeah.
2: So I mean, back to that scale thing. Like you know, you can you can do stuff with bunches of grapes, or you can yeah. do stuff with tons of grapes, and so. If we're doing a control experiment like this last year, we did an experiment with leafing, so when you go through the vineyard you you want the canopy, the leaves on the on the grapevine to provide sort of dappled light to the fruit while it's ripening, so this is over weeks you know weeks periods it's not and so we go through and we'll do an experiment where we'll pick off a specific number of leaves, like let's say six leaves on each shoot on each vine, so you're talking about a lot of leaves you know through. An area, and then we'll do another area where we'll leave the canopy as as it was to see how that activity affects ripening and then affects flavor development. And so we we have vineyard blocks that we like to do that in, but you don't want to use every block every year because then you know you'll create different things and and there's carbohydrate uptake in the roots. I mean, we can go down a deep rabbit hole here. Um, And so typically, if we're doing an experiment like that, we'll do like four rows. And then we'll do four rows of experiment, four rows of control, four rows of experiment, four rows of control. And then you have to flag all those because then you have to pick them. You have to make sure they get into the fermenter correctly. You have to pick the right amount of tons, you know, so, but, but we do, you know, we do a lot of experimentation like that. Then you make the wine and then, you know, we'll taste those over several years to see how that experiment, you know, see um, from a sensory standpoint, if we can assess what the experiment did. And of course, we do a lot of chemistry and and uh, we're also, you know, um, trying to, to control that environment in the moment. You know, so there's a lot of data around that. But those are the kinds of experiments that, you know, we could do in the vineyard.
0: So do you guys share all the vineyards, share their experiments or is some of that proprietary to get to your particular vintage of wine?
2: That's a great question. So there are industry groups and many, many vintners will talk about what they're doing. So I'd say the default is to share. There are certain vendors who don't like to share we're 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 on the you can imagine from talking to me for the last few minutes that we're on the hundred percent share let's learn let's you know I think Robert Mondavi was the champion in napa valley of of uh you know the rising tide floats all boats, and so I think that is very true and so it, there's not enough proprietary data about something I would do in the vineyard that that I wouldn't share with you as to here I tried this it didn't work you know, or it did work or you should try this or a lot of talk like that, that, that uh, we all share um, collectively as farmers here in the Valley.
0: The little peek into that science uh, and behind the art of winemaking is fascinating. Not a lot of people, I think, understand that there's a strong base of experimentation and technology there. There's
2: so much that goes into a bottle of wine,
1: you know. Uh-huh. That's cool. Well, D- David, uh, let's talk for just a second business risk. In the sense of, you know, uh, I'm on the board of Molson Coors. So, you know, the Bev Alk industry is, you know, sort of segmented into, you know, spirits, wine and uh, beer and, you know, other crazy things that are coming along the line. How do you see that evolving? Is the wine business on an up cycle or a flat down cycle? How do you see that playing out?
2: There's a couple of factors to that. One is that there's a lot of discussion about the, what younger people are drinking. And, but from a, for, for fine wine, which is what I do. Um, you know, which is a category, I think the, the future is very, very bright. I, I believe that, you know, people have been drinking great wine for years and years and years. People are not drinking our wine to get a buzz or for this, you know, so the, I do tailgate with it. I've got two kids at Notre Dame and so we do tailgate <laughs> with it. But but in general, you know, it's, um, I think one of the things that's happened post-COVID with restaurants, you know, I was joking during COVID that you'd go out to dinner and it would be half the food for twice the price. And so, you know, now, you know, you're paying $70 for a steak at places. And so people are willing to spend 200 or $300 on a bottle of wine, you know, if you're paying $70 for a steak. So I think that's been very, very interesting uh, how that's changed. You know, I also believe you You actually mentioned it earlier in the broadcast that, you know, you won't drink a bottle of wine unless, you know, you're going to enjoy it with the person that you're enjoying it with. and And the life's too short to drink cheap wine. I think people really understand that. I actually was in New York and had a glass of wine on the plane on the way back. And it was terrible. You know, it's was, it was hard to drink. So you don't want to do that. So I, I, think, I think for, you know, everybody, I mean, from clothing to food to, you know, people that yeah. enjoy fine things and that's important to them are going to continue to drink excellent wines yeah. and we're going to continue to make them. So I don't see it as a, as a giant
1: risk. So at your end of the business, it's uh, it's in good shape, yeah. Yeah,
2: and I think from a generational standpoint, you know, we have Silver Oak in particular has become a family tradition. So it's not like I don't drink wine. You know, I'd rather have you know a forty dollar tequila than drink wine. It's like, oh no, we we have wine on Thanksgiving because this is our family tradition that I grew up with, and that's been really gratifying to see.
0: So I have to ask, if you're tailgating with fine wine, what is the food that is accompanying? to compliment
2: <laughs> we did a big tailgater for the clemson game last year and and so we had uh beans and ribs and and, and there were like six <laughs> bottles of silver oak sitting on a table and and we had hundreds, like more than 100 people at this tailgater and I, I said to the parents i'm like why don't you guys open those bottles you know i brought them and they're like oh no, no no we're not gonna they're too fancy we're not gonna we're not gonna have that and i said i brought the bottles of wine i went and opened all six of them they were gone <laughs> in 10 minutes <laughs> so once so I believe once you. they were gone, they were gone in ten minutes.
1: So hey, good wine will go good on cornflakes too, right? Yeah, I mean, come on. I,
2: especially the Alexander Valley. <laughs> I like to say, the Alexander yeah. Valley will pay, pair with anything. Yeah.
1: So uh, oh
0: yeah,
2: those
1: are wonderful. Yeah. Well, David, this is as Sandra said. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, I can't wait to get back out there and connect with you. Uh, so much to talk about, so much to do, and and maybe a, a, a couple of glasses of wine to go along with it. But we hope you'll keep taking risk in that business because it it sure is a lot of fun to spend time with you and with with your wines well i'm very
2: passionate about what i do and i, I invite y'all to come and, and visit anytime it's a beautiful spot and uh i'm looking out at napa valley right now on my window it's a great spot
1: i've got i've got a few bottles i'll get maybe a, a bottle to to uh, sandy so she can enjoy it sounds great
0: yeah it was really fascinating chat and i really enjoyed poking on the science and technology piece being the geek that i am yeah we'll come up well, there's a and lot we can, going on there I,
2: I can introduce you to our viticultural geeks and and you'll okay. you'll have a blast so yeah come come visit <laughs>
0: awesome <laughs> i will do that
2: yeah okay great well thanks all right good
1: talking to you thank you all right i appreciate it
0: that was david duncan who runs the silver oak winery in napa valley i'm sandra magnus
1: and i'm sandy winnefeld
0: Check us out on social media, including a short video of our interview with David on TikTok. Our handle is very simple, at The Adrenaline Zone.